Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face to face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Welcome. We're glad you joined us. Uh, I'm Jason McKnight. I'm here with Ben Hendricks. And today we come back to a new segment uh, called Three Christians You Should Know. One you know, one you've heard of, and one you don't know, but you probably should. Now, I'm not talking about people in our church. (laughs) Three Christians. I'm talking about people in history. The last time we did this, we looked at Billy Graham and Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, and then Jeremiah Burroughs, and that was a lot of fun. Today, we're going to actually tackle three new ones, because why would we do the same ones twice? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, uh, we're going to talk about Martin Luther, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and then a third guy that I can't even pronounce, John Chrysostom. Yeah, just say it confidently. That's what I'm going to do. (laughs) So then I blew it because (laughs) I said I don't know how to pronounce him. Well, Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about old Martin Luther? Yeah, I'll start off with Martin Luther, one uh, that's been a lot of fun just to to kind of dive back into his life. One we we all know at some point is why he's number one. Um, Martin was born in Eisenben in 1483. It's about 120 miles southwest, I believe, of modern Berlin, raised in Mansfield, where his father worked the local copper mine. Like this was down, kind of down-to-earth family in a way. But Martin was sent off to Latin school at an early age, early enough that then he was sent to university at the University of Erfurt at the age of <laughs> That's 13. That's a great name, I, Erfurt. I, again, say it confidently, yep. move past it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was here that Martin Luther began his academic uh, career mm-hmm. and prowess, and through his success at public debate, he got the great nickname, Uh-oh. the Philosopher. Wow. I know. He put that cool. on the back of his jersey. Uh, for sure. I'd have it everywhere, and I'd make sure everybody knew I, that's, that was my name. <laughs> so anyways, this is kind of his mm-hmm. life for the next couple of years, but his life then takes an unexpected turn in 1505 when... He's on the way home from, from university. Spring break. Yep. Daytona 21 Beach. years old. And he's nearly struck by lightning. Wow. And so I love this. Wow. Martin Luther's on the way home, nearly struck by lightning, laying on the ground, and he screams out, Help me, St. Anne. St. Anne? I'll become a monk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. And here's what's hilarious. Is soon after his recovery, he actually fulfilled that vow. Huh. He gives away all of his possessions, and he enters into the monastic life. And so to no one's surprise, I mean, this guy of academic prowess, he enters in, he, he finds great success as a monk. Like, he, he plunges into prayer, he plunges into fasting, uh, and, and, and just into all these different ascetic practices, often going without sleep, and during what, what's written about is bone-chillingly cold weather, mm. and even would hit himself over and over, just trying to just entering into that aesthetic practice. He even said in his own words, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. Mm. He didn't skip out on anything. He was serious about it. And so Luther was driven to study much of of just the, the scriptures and who God was because of this strong fear of God's wrath. Hmm. That he would struggle with the book of Romans, yeah. the famous Reformation text, Romans 117, uh, which says, for in, it, for, in it, or for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Mm-hmm. He often would uh, write about him feeling disheartened and even paralyzed by the righteousness of God because yeah. he knew yeah. that, if, that God was so righteous and he wasn't. And he wondered how he could ever be in a relationship with this God. And so it wasn't until 1513, 1514, while listening to lectures on the Psalms, see, the lectures can be good, <laughs> studying the book of Romans, and then most importantly, probably meditating on just who Jesus was, that he began to see a very important thing, the mercy of God. This was the very, the most pivotal moment, or this very pivotal moment for Martin Luther, where he began his journey holding to the key aspects of the Reformation. Things like mm. the church is a community of those who have been given faith. It's not secession. Huh. It's sal- that salvation comes by faith, not by sacrament. Right. That human beings right. are innately unable to come to God alone. That humility was a response to the gift of grace, not a way to earn grace. Mm. Or that faith was trusting the promises of God and the merits of Christ, not ascending to the church's teachings. And so what later comes from a lot of these are those major five solas. Sola Scriptura, right. Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solo Cristo, and Sola Soli De, Deo Gloria. By Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, glory to God alone. Mm. And so Martin Luther's life as a passionate reformer started soon after this happened, all on this All Saints Eve Mm -hmm. in 1517, as he publicly objects to the teachings and preachings of the church, specific men within the church, the selling of indulgences, and numerous other things. Uh, Upon hearing the coined, and that is a pun intended, saying of John Tetzel, Mm -hmm. once the coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. Luther <laughs> erupts and questions the church motives and called for a public debate of his 95 theses, soon demonstrating Luther's objection and questioning of the authority of the church. It wasn't just about the indulgences. He was raising a question of, is, yeah. does the church have the authority to be saying these things? Right on, right on. And so these 95 theses quickly spread across Not 95 Germany, Reeses, <laughs> as we Which say. is always the pun, and, I, and was always the joke at seminary. <clears throat> and so these 95 theses quickly spread across Germany, and, put, and to put it mildly, the rest of his life was spent writing, preaching, and running from all those who vehemently objected him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what is he known for? Again, <laughs> to put it mildly... Yeah. Martin Luther is most known for his work in the Reformation. In 1517, when he nails the 95 mm-hmm. Theses to the, to the castle church door in Wittenberg and starts the Reformation, the act pressed against the authority of the church, and it shined a light on the cancer that had spread throughout much of the church for, with, which, with a lust for power, wealth, and so much more. See, Luther's conviction to bring the church back to the word of God led him to a deep desire to get mm. Bibles into the hands of yep. Christians. And the printing press just and came out. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. Where He most notably translates the Bible into German because it was only in Latin before, right? Mm-hmm. And so he, he uses the Gutenberg printing press to print those Bibles, his own articles, his own sermons, and gets them out yeah, to the people. That's right. Because his motive, his, his legacy that he was beginning to lay, that we'll eventually get into here in a minute, 
was that he wanted a far richer, richer and deeper than we could ever give him credit, is that he wanted to get the Bible, the word of God into the hands of the people. Yeah. That his accomplishments through the, Reforma- through the Reformation was first and foremost a calling and the reforming of the church back to the word of God. So all of that, yeah. why does that ultimately matter for us? I'm going to give you a couple and then... Yeah, and we'll just leave it there. But. Because Luther's legacy yeah, is immense. Goes on forever. So, one, he starts the Reformation mm-hmm. with a couple swings of a hammer or whatever that actually looked like. He starts the Reformation. He translates the Bible into German. Some say in German that he is the one that created the modern German language. Yeah, in that, that translation. That's incredible. Yeah. That. He's a writer of hymns, mm-hmm. namely a mighty fortress is our God. Mm-hmm. He's also the writer of the greater and small or the larger and smaller catechism that's still being yeah, used by true. many today. This one's we need to hear hmm. that he influenced at least in some small way, but mostly large, every Protestant reformer, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and Cranmer. And also every Protestant stream, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, and Anabaptist. He had a mark on all of them. That his writings, sermons, and reform helped also end the Middle Ages and bring in and like bring in the modern era. That his teachings and the outcomes of the Reformation, so regarding things like human capital, Protestant Mm -hmm. ethics, Mm -hmm. governance economic development, theology, and so much more have shaped literature, music, art, liturgies, churches, governments, and countries, and more. Wow. And let me say this to end with him. There has been so much that he has either written or has been written about him that some have said that that these books on Martin Luther occupy more shelves than any other person written about outside of Jesus. Wow. His reach, his legacy is vast and it's immense. Mm-hmm. He has made a difference. Mm-hmm. And that's one that we already know. There yep. he is, Martin Luther. If you don't know anything about him, now at least you know a few minutes about him and it's great and, yeah. and it's fantastic. Well, John Newton, let's, let's move from 14 and 1500s ahead to the 17 and 1800s. Far and away, the best-known song, at least the top 10 for sure, in this country is Amazing Grace. Hmm. I checked at the Library of Congress. There are almost 4,000 different recordings of it in the Library of Congress. Wow. You know, people like Judy Collins to Aretha Franklin to the NYPD bagpipers to Il Devo. <laughs> I mean, everybody is singing this song. Well, who wrote it? And that's John Newton. Hmm. Who's this guy? So born in 1725... In England, and he lived until the early 1800s into his 80s. His mom died very young, and at 11 years old, his father, who was a seafarer, took him out to sea, and he spent the next many decades out at sea, or several decades, I should say. At 18, so here he is on the waters, he was headed to Jamaica. So we're talking now, you know, 1743, headed to Jamaica to work as a slave master on a sugar plantation. Now, what everybody knows about slavery is you don't want to be in the islands. Mm -hmm. You'd way rather be in the American South. You don't want to be in the islands. You don't want to be in Brazil, if you want to be a slave at all, and you don't want to be there, (laughs) but I'm just saying. Uh, So he's going to be a slave master on a sugar plantation. 
And it all went wrong before he got there, and somehow he gets pressed into naval service in the Royal Navy, which he didn't want to do at all, but now he's going to spend his life uh, in the Royal Navy, and he gets in a lot of trouble, and somehow he finagles to be moved, to, dis to be discharged from the Navy into the slave trade. Hmm. So now he becomes a slave trader, and he's going to West Africa, and he's going back to the West Indies, and then he's going up to, the, uh, to England. So it's the, that terrible golden triangle. In the late 40s, he has, uh, 1740s, he has several near-death encounters yeah. on the high seas. And, you know, of course, we look back and we see the fingerprints of God drawing him to himself. But here he is in, uh, in these storms on the high seas and so on and so forth. And he's converted by the gospel and he becomes a Christian. But as with all of us, it took a little while for the conversion to reach every part of him. <laughs> to, to put it lightly. And, and by the way, don't you, like, do you ever feel like when you start learning about history or you start thinking of eras in the past, well, everyone was a Christian back then because you know like three people who were great Christians in history. So you think, oh my goodness, well, everybody, don't fall for that nostalgic memory trick. Hmm. Like the colonies in the 1700s, England in the 1700s, were not filled with Christians. They weren't. In fact, one in four single women in London in the late 18th century was a prostitute. It has never come close to that wow. since then. It was a coarse and horrible society at that rate. So don't, don't start thinking back, oh, well, you know, everybody's a Christian back then. Are you kidding? They're slave trading. This isn't Christianity. However, here's Newton. Slave trading comes to Christ, and it takes a while for his conversion to work through his mm -hmm. whole character. But he's still being discipled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the church. And the next few years, he still continues in the slave trade. And he tells his own account of this. And by his own account, he was a ruthless businessman. And he was unfeeling toward the Africans in his ship. In the 1750s, he endures a terrible illness and gives up the sea life and goes back to England mid-1750s, by 1757, he enters the Anglican priesthood. And he actually becomes known, after he, he graduates or whatever, he, he becomes known as a great preacher and a, and a well-respected pastor. And he serves a parish at Olney in Buckinghamshire, out in the country for maybe 15 years. And then he moves into London to St. Mary Woolnoth Parish or church. And he's there for like 28 years and it's there in London, and, and actually two different parts, but in London is where guys like William Wilberforce, who we all kind of heard of, we saw oh. the movie Amazing Grace or whatever, but he's an MP and he's working to abolish the slave trade. And William Wilberforce would seek out John Newton as a spiritual mentor and, and several others as well uh, would do that. There's a plaque on the church, oh. even today at St. Mary Woolnoth in London, and it says this, John Newton, clerk. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel, which he had long labored to destroy. He ministered near 16 years in Olney, in Bucks, and 28 years in this church. Of course, it's at St. Mary's Walnut. Uh, so there he is. He dies in 1807. So what's he known for? Well, he's obviously known for amazing grace. I mean, that's why we are even talking about him. But it's just amazing to think he's a slave ship captain and a hymn writer. And Amazing Grace is just one of his hymns. Actually, while he was in Olney, 
He teamed up with another guy that moved there, William Cowper, and the two of them, and, and he encouraged William to keep writing hymns, which by the way, hymns sound like old things, but it's praise and worship music of yep. the day. Like that's all. We're just, we're just writing new contemporary worship music for the people of God to sing, just like we're doing today. We're doing exactly what we should be doing with new music. So William Cowper, uh, John Newton are writing these hymns. In fact, he would produce one for every Thursday evening prayer service. So he, he writes a new hymn. I don't know about the tunes, but the lyrics. I, I don't understand who wrote all the tunes or did they reuse different tunes. But you can look at the only hym hymnal online or the list of them. And really, basically, it's uh, from Genesis to Revelation. And you can see where he writes. You can tell what he's teaching by what hymn is called because it, it just goes through all that and then hmm. by topics, but arranged by scripture. So Amazing Grace, actually, he wrote for when he was teaching on 1 Chronicles 17 and God's covenant with David and where David exclaims in response, who huh. am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought us this far? Well, and that's Amazing Grace. That saved a wretch yeah. like me. You know, and then he wrote another one, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, one of my favorite hymns about the church. Um, anyway, so why does it matter? Why do we talk about John Newton aside from knowing he writes Amazing Grace? Well, I think it's this question. Can we sing that song if a slave trader wrote it? And that's where we live today, kind of a bit of cancel culture. And how do you know when we should set someone aside and we're dealing with Ravi? What does that mean? Like the horrible stuff that's come out about Ravi Zacharias' death, uh, after his death. What does that mean for his corpus of work? Hmm. You know, and, and, and that may be a little different, but... You know, think about this devotional hymn that uh, John Newton wrote. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. And he goes on several more, more really devotional verses. He wrote that hymn, which has been one of my favorite hymns, and it's helped me in my life as I've tried to worship yeah. Jesus, all seven or eight verses of it. He wrote that hymn in a port in Africa on his ship, waiting to cram the hull full of Africans in chains to be sold into slavery. How can I get anything good from that <laughs> hymn when it's written in a place like that? We got to wrestle with stuff like that. That's why John Newton is so helpful because we have to remember that Christ's work in him was not yet finished and God does not wait for us to be perfect before he starts to use us. Every preacher knows that. Amen. <laughs> and what an encouragement that John Newton is just like where we are in our lives and just having to struggle with never yeah. feeling like we're up to it. And then, I mean, yeah. yeah. So I have one, the last one, kind of in a yeah. similar base where we're going to land is just, he's such an encouragement to me. But so John Newton, one you've heard of, mm -hmm. but here's one that one we, we should have heard of. Right. And right. his name is John Chrysostom. He was born, I mean, we're going to have to go way back in time to 349 AD. Wow. I didn't know they had people back then. I, barely. There were only a few of them. And, they were, and he was raised in the city of Antioch. And so Antioch mm -hmm. was, a, was a leading intellectual city of late antiquity. Uh, and John was raised as an intellectual from a very early age, all the mm -hmm. way from his mom, who was a... Uh, a pious Christian widow who raised him up in the faith, as as well as with uh, he, he he was lucky enough to have a tutor named Labanius, this fa this famous pagan re uh, like rhetorician who has been a professor both in Athens and Constantinople. Hmm. So, in other words, 
he had a tutor who, who was teaching him in the, in just in rhetoric, in law, in math, and all these things that would have like rubbed shoulders with some of the greatest oh, minds in the world at yeah. this point, at least. And so he, he goes off, goes to school, and then after his education, like many devout men, John entered into the into monastic seclusion. So he, mm. he steps away from Antioch, he steps away from his family, and he goes into seclusion. And so, kind of like Martin Luther, like his he his aesthetic rigors were recorded uh, as one of the most like difficult portions of his life, and it ended up being detrimental to his health. It was hmm. it was uh, so intense that he would pace around for entire days straight, wow. Wow. reciting and memorizing the Bible. His studying was so intense he would go days without sleeping or eating, and eventually had health complications because of it. Like hmm. there's no surprise to that. And he eventually had to go back to Antioch. And so it's here where his life really starts to take off in the, in the church where he joined the church at Antioch and, and would go on to write numerous books and articles and quickly, very mm. quickly, would become, became a famous preacher of his day. Huh. And so he would preach through entire books of the Bible, largely leaning on Paul because that was his favorite uh, biblical author. Can't go wrong with I, Paul. Amen. And he said this, and I love this. He, he described Paul as this. That vessel of election, the trumpet of heaven. Uh, what a great way to put Paul. I'm going to put that on my business card, the trumpet of yeah, heaven. I, I, I'm not bold enough to do that. No, I think. that's true. I'm not and so he gained so much notoriety mm. and unsurprisingly much rejection and pushback as his sermons would denounce the sins of the day. Abortion, prostitution, gluttony, the theater, Swearing. Wait a minute, we're talking about 300s yeah, and 400s. Not, not even today. Wow. He would convict his listeners about the, their comforts, the wealth, mm. their wealth, their status, and, and their own desires, leading them to indulge in the word of God and not the world, and not all of the, the gluttonous things that would came from the Roman Empire and out. So unsurprisingly, John's faithfulness to preach led him to a kidnapping Wow. By Roman soldiers who seized him and transported him to the capital. Hmm. What was surprising, both to him and me, was that he wasn't taken to be killed or silenced, but to be forcefully consecrated as the Archbishop of Constantinople. Wow. What he later would find out is that numerous government officials had orchestrated this whole thing to, as they would say, to adorn the church of the capital with what they believed was Christianity's greatest orator. So, John preached there several years, believing that instead, instead of rebelling against this great injustice, that where he'd been kidnapped from family, kidnapped from his home, <laughs> he would commit to it and accept it as God's providence. Hmm. Well, a life lesson in that, perhaps. Yeah. That he continued to preach through the sins of the day, mm. continuing many that he had preached in Antioch. Right. So, the abuse of yeah, wealth and power. Yeah, you can reuse your sermons yeah, when you that's, get a new church. Yeah. <laughs> That's why people only last so long. So wealth and uh, against wealth and power, the theater, wow. luxury, prostitution, and so much more. And so what was really interesting is here it even meant more because he was surrounded by much of the imperial household hmm. here in Constantinople. Hmm. And so here's the problem. John's lack of tact and political skill led him to create many enemies as he preached the gospel, as he, w as he was serious about calling out sin. Sure. And so this happened both in the imperial family as well as even in the church. 
And so due to his preaching, it angered many people, and John was eventually cast out and sent into exile by the church and also the imperial family. And so he spends a couple years, three years, writing letters back to the church of Constantinople before he eventually dies in 407 AD. So what is John Chrysostom most known for? I'm going to give you two. The first one is just being the archbishop of Constantinople. So almost immediately after his death, he becomes venerated as a saint. And then 31 years later, uh, they start bringing his works back into the city. Hmm. And today he's actually celebrated as one of the great ecumenical teachers of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Hmm. And then secondly, his writings and recorded sermons. So his status as archbishop and then his writings. Yeah. They're considered um, by many in his day to be the greatest orator in Christianity. So in mm-hmm. other words, his sermons and all of his writings were kept. They were consi- they were almost treasured by many. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote wow. and spoke of just a few things and many, the superiority of Christ over everything mm-hmm. against the Judaizers, explaining the priesthood against homosexuality, against abuse of power and wealth, mm-hmm explaining the sovereignty of God, how Christians should relate to government and rule, and so much more. Almost like the issues of the day. Yeah, again. And that he was later given the title Doctor of the Church because of the value of his writings. 500 sermons and 200 letters that just survive. He's considered one of the greatest of uh, of, of the early church fathers. So why should this matter to us? Yeah. I think first, it's that John is a helpful reminder that even those who are outside of our traditions are very often faithful, helpful, and really important. That's good. That is really good. Like, we need to remember that he's celebrated in the Eastern Orthodox Church as being a great ecumenical teacher. Mm -hmm. His writings and sermons have drastically impacted much of the liturgy and life in the Eastern Orthodox Church homilies, liturgies, treatises, and more have influenced generations and inspired catechisms, music, literature, and more. Mm. His influence was so great, he was given these titles, like as doctor of the church. He has made a massive impact in a world that we often miss in his hope to be faithful with where God had called him to be, to preach the word of God and to hold it above everything else. And then secondly, his sincerity to hold the word of God and faithfulness to stand against the sins of the day should be, I think, an encouragement to us. What I find so fascinating, and you were, were mm. kind of joking about, is how similar many of these things he would preach against are issues also of today. Right. Abortion, homosexuality, abuse of power, mm-hmm. watering down God's word, and so, much, so many Wealth other and things. complacency. Yeah. Like he's preaching against those things like 1500 years, more than that years before that we've ever got on the scene where the issues mm-hmm. are still here today. He is an encouragement and reminder that there is nothing new under the that sun. That's true. That's that God true. led his people out of these sins and he still built his church then. And the beauty is he can and is still doing it today. Mm. John is a great encouragement and reminder that God is at work. And we as people don't need to compromise to what the culture is doing. And we need to stand firm in the truth that God has given us and that we can, and we can be faithful. That's who John Chrysostom is. 
That's great. Well, Ben, thank you for putting that together on Martin and John. And uh, thank you for joining us. There you have it. Three Christians you should know, and now you do. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to this. Share this with a history-loving friend or anyone who wants to grow in Jesus. And we'll see you the next time. Thanks. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.